Welcome to Listen to Darlinghurst, a History Lab series produced by Catherine Franey. In this episode, we visit the streets and street corners of Darlinghurst after dark. Working on Premier Lane and William Street was exciting. The amount of activity that was going on back then. When I first landed here in about 1982, it was shoulder to shoulder from Forbes here to Darling Street. You had to fight to get a room in one of those safe houses, you know. In fact, you'd go in and there'd be women and clients lined up along the hallway. You could stand up by the Coca-Cola sign at King's Cross, look back into the city. All you could see was this long line of lights, bumper to bumper, all the way back to Town Hall. They were there for the nightlife, and they were there to see us. The glamour and, uh, in some cases, the freaks. My name is Julie Bates, sometimes also known as Darlow Debbie. I'm Chantal Martin. I came over here in 1984 from New Zealand. Here we are on Liverpool Street in East Sydney, which is, I guess, um, down memory lane for me. Darlinghurst was where it was all happening. Bright lights, so for me it was excitement. It was also um, where I transitioned to become the woman who I am today. So I was around a lot of my sisters, some of whom were working down on Premier Lane. That was my introduction. My connection with this area, and I guess more broadly sex worker rights, goes back a very long while. I was a young law clerk working at a Victorian law firm, and our clients at the time were brothel owners, sex workers, people who use drugs, drug dealers, and I I would be their court support person. So, you know, I um, got to know a little bit about the industry from that side, but at some point I did jump the fence. It came about because I had fallen behind on my rent and I had run out of money and I was about to get kicked out of my unit and I spun around and said to one of the girls, um, we used to all drink at a hotel called the Rex Hotel and the Bottoms Out Bar and I said to one of the girls, oh my God, I'm about to get kicked out and they said, oh well girl, you're going to have to throw on a frock and get down there and sell your ass and I said, oh I couldn't do that, I couldn't possibly do that and they said, oh you can, yeah you can, we do that. Inner city prostitution and soliciting were the main complaints of residents who attended the Sydney City Council's meeting last night. Good morning, Alderman Ancliffe. Good morning, Mark. I believe that you have a particular interest in the issue because you live in Darlinghurst yourself. How bad is it for a resident? Oh, it's horrific, uh, Margaret. It goes into all hours of the night. It's not the girls themselves. It's the trucks and traffic and hooliganism that goes until 3 o'clock in the morning. As mm. a result, the residents cannot sleep. They've been under siege for two years. From where we're standing now, we're looking east along um, Liverpool Street near the corner of Forbes and Liverpool. Probably three or four of these grand old terrace houses were used as safe houses. Safe houses were places that we would take our clients. So the beauty of that was you could be a street-based sex worker and work right outside where you're going to take your client. So there's no need to get in the car. But there's a hierarchy involved here. 
So if you were new, you had to pay your dues. So I remember my first night, and one woman coming up to me, saying to me, who are you? <laughs> I said, oh, my name's blah, blah, and I'm just here to do a few jobs, you know. She said, well, get down the end there to work with the transgender women because they weren't allowed to work in the safe houses. They had to do all of their clients in cars because the men that ran those safe houses would not allow transgender women to work out of their houses. So I moved up to the corner and I'm looking, you know, at these very tall women, <laughs> looking down at me going, who are you? What are you doing here? And one of them said, nothing to worry about. You know, she's, she's not competition. <laughs> We've got the trans workers, of course, which is my community. We were very protective of our area and where we work. They became my best allies, and I guess I learnt a whole lot from them. They were mistresses of their trade. There's a little bit of history here as well. When I started down on Premier Lane in 84, I was told by the girls that were there previous to me that the old working street used to be Boundary Street, down the back of St Vincent's Hospital. And then it was moved to Darley Street, and then eventually it came down to Premier Lane. And it was all moved because we were in the site of a residential area. At that time, there were a whole lot of new residents buying properties in that area without knowing that the history of Darlinghurst is that you're going to see a hooker on the street, and they could even be on your doorstep, you know. So the police were constantly getting called to come and move us on and stuff like that. Then I got arrested, probably, you know, the first few nights of working here. It was about two o'clock in the morning, and as I'm stepping out to flag a taxi, this woman came out, and I'd seen her through the night, petite woman. She looked a bit like Heidi. She just stepped down off the Matterhorn, milking the goats, you know. She was so gorgeous. So I stopped and chatted. Now, it just so happened at that moment, two off-duty Darlinghurst detectives were on their way home. And remember, 1979, they repealed the laws, street-based sex work was no longer illegal, but they could still get you with something. It's called obstructing traffic. So they arrested Heidi and me and took us to Darlinghurst Police Station. And therein is another horrific tale. It was a time when you were never quite sure who you were going to encounter by jumping in and out of cars. Nine times out of ten, I was okay, and most of us were okay, but there were a few shaky times down there where some of the girls weren't so okay, you know, where they'd get abused. And the other thing about that time as well, we could never go to the cops to report any of that. In some cases, some of those police were the biggest perpetrators of what was happening to us. They would come down and they would round us up, whoever they caught on Premier Lane, and they would um, take our money off us and put us in a paddy wagon. And then they'd drive us out west. I remember getting dropped off at Parramatta with another girl, um, another trans worker, and we were told to find our own way back. And sort of like, okay, we're all dressed up in our hooker gear, right? We were right out west. And back then, to be out there and to be you, who you are, wasn't the safest place for you to be and they knew that they knew that i started thinking there's got to be people looking out for our interests where are they who are they is there anyone one night 
on my corner down there on William and Burke Street, the Salvation Army came by again offering me one more cold cup of tea and sympathy. And I said, no, thank you. And that's where I, I found some of the women that were working with the Australian Prostitutes Collective, I think within a couple of days of getting involved with them. And uh, I remember the meeting was at the Women's Electoral Lobby and found myself co-authoring our first submission for funding. So there was this small groundswell of really committed, passionate women, such as Ros Nelson and Jan Aitka and Roberta Perkins. So, you know, within 12 months, I suppose, of that, we managed to get funding. I remember being down there one time when I'd never met Roberta Perkins before. All I saw when I got out in the client's car was this tall woman holding a clipboard. And I thought, who on earth is she? And then she opened her mouth and said, you, I need to talk to you. And I thought, oh, my God, I don't know who this person is. And uh, she would go, now... I'm with the University of so-and-so and I'm doing some research on transgender sex workers and uh, I'd need a little bit of information from you and, you know, she'd be a force to reckon with, right? And then she'd be asking these questions and I thought, okay, I'll answer your questions so you can go away. So she did. And a client dropped me back onto the street that same night. I saw her and I said to the client, keep driving, keep driving. (laughs) But I had no idea what it was going to mean. Um, you know, I had no idea what she was doing was going to help me and other workers like me get the benefits from this. This is the first uh, place on the planet that decriminalised sex work, and that happened in 1995. It was the first time in the world where it had actually been decriminalised, and the city fathers had listened to the voices of sex workers telling the stories of their experiences. Just down here over William Street on the right-hand side was the last remaining safe house, the last stand of the safe houses that I did the DA for, development application. So after decriminalisation in 1995, brothels were no longer illegal and neither were safe houses. But to operate, you had to get consent from council. I did the DA for them and, and then finally, after all those years of not allowing transgender women to work out of safe houses, the manager of that place allowed them into work. That was a really heartening thing to see at the end of all of this time. Finally, trans women would be treated equally in this kind of um, workplace, you know. But as it turned out in the end, transgender women were the last women to work the street of Darlinghurst. Most people then went online. It's changed because of social media. It's changed because of mobile phones. I mean, at the end of the day, wouldn't it be better to be sitting on your lounge in a nice warm house and having a client come to you rather than standing down on the street in the middle of winter with next to nothing on? Because that's what it was like for us. When they finally closed Premier Lane, what they did was they put bollards to stop traffic coming down Forbes Street. Because, see, the traffic used to flow from Upper Forbes Street come down and it would hit the top of the stairs there and you could either go left or right to go up Premier Lane okay but now today you'll go down there and there's bollards there now so there's some of the changes that happened to stop us from well stop our clients from going there but you know what clients will go wherever we are there's a handful of workers that are out there now but it's not what it used to be 
Well, we've come to our last stop, the corner of Stanley and Yurong, where they erected a statue of joy. If you've been to Amsterdam and you've seen the picture of the sex worker in the red light district there standing in a door frame, similar thing here. Louis Fraser was the artist. She obviously had some connection with sex workers of the time because this is the heartland of sex work and it's the heartland too of where the movement starts getting its legs. So Joy stood here not for a very long time. It seems that back in the mid-90s, a resident, a local from around here said, this is offending me and I want it gone. So they removed Joy and she's now in the sculpture garden at Macquarie University. I would like to start a campaign for Bring Back Joy. I mean, I really think she should be put back on her pedestal because she was there in honour of all of the women who have ever toiled in sex work to make a living, to support their families, just an ordinary, hard-working woman that once upon a time was quite revered in this neighbourhood. It would be a beautiful um, way to uh, respect that era and those women. That was Julie Bates, pioneer of rights for sex workers in downtown Darlinghurst. I'm Anna Clark, and this is Listen to Darlinghurst, a special series of History Lab. Joining me now is Catherine Franey, who produced the Darlinghurst audio story you just heard. Hey, Catherine. Hi, Anna. Is there any update on where Joy's at? Actually, there is. So Julie Bates and I have joined forces since doing these recordings quite some time ago now, and we managed to track down Louis Fraser, who's the artist who created Joy. That took some doing because Louis um, has a different surname now and doesn't live in Sydney anymore and hasn't done any public commissions recently. But she was so happy to hear from us. And so we have been trying to garner support for this campaign. It's really not difficult. Like Joy seems to have had so many fans. She was a controversial figure back in the 90s, but she had far more fans than detractors, I think. And so we've got a committee together Mm. and we've been strategising around how to do this. Louis reckons that the best thing would be to actually recast Joy in bronze because that will mean that she's less vulnerable to vandalism. And so we've got the support of one of the councillors at the City of Sydney. There's actually quite a movement, not just in Sydney, but in other cities as well, to have better representation of women in the you know statuary of the city. And certainly that's the case in Sydney. And Councillor Linda Scott has moved a resolution at council recently to see about this. So the idea of bringing Joy back to Darlinghurst really fits in with that objective. Mm. Councillor Scott is actually hosting a petition on her website. And so if people who are listening to this episode are interested in signing the petition, please head to Linda Scott's website. She's a a Labor councillor with the City of Sydney. Uh, We've already got lots of signatures and we are hoping to see Joy back on her pedestal in Darlinghurst in 2024. There's a couple of dates that we're working towards. One's in March, which is International Women's Day, and the other is June. There's an International Day of the Sex Worker in June. So all going well, we will see Joy back in Darlinghurst. I love the way you talk about Joy as a person, you know, as a figure of history, and I think this story really shows the 
power of history and historical narratives and characters from the past, but also how we represent that past. You know, lots of public history angles there as well. That is actually really interesting because in terms of the public statuary in Sydney, there's only five statues of actual women in the public domain in the city of Sydney area. I mean, that's an incredibly small number. And Joy isn't a historic character. But you're right, through almost through this campaign and through the story of Joy, she's become. She's become a character from the past. And I think it just shows so much that relationship between history that happens and also history is something that we do and we think about. It's a practice as well as the past. Um, And it's so interesting to think about this story, which is at its core a story about workers' rights, but it's a very particular area of workers' rights and history that's been pushed to the margins. And so I'm interested for you to chat about the angle. What was the angle that you wanted to highlight in this history? Actually, the origin of this story comes from a conversation I had with an amazing person called Regret. Regret is a DJ, an artist. Regret, I think, had either participated in or had even led some walking tours around the inner city with SWAP, the Sex Workers Outreach Project, pointing out some of the features of the landscape that date back to this battle over street-based sex work and this kind of struggle between street-based sex workers on the one hand, the police on the other, a kind of liberalising state government on another, and then, of course, the council itself. And so things like the creation of cul-de-sacs, which Darlinghurst is Mm. full of, this was initiatives to stop people from being able to go around the block, you know, cruising for sex workers. I just thought this is fascinating. These seemingly meaningless features in the sort of built landscape actually have their origins in this turf war. Mm. Uh, So that was the origin of the story. And then looking into the very unique history of sex worker activism in Australia and its wins, I quickly discovered that New South Wales was the first jurisdiction in the world to decriminalise sex work. And so, yeah, I guess just a little bit of research, finding out all of the um, qualitative research that Roberta Perkins did with transgender sex workers. I was like, wow, this is a really rich history. And it's Mm. such an important part of Darlinghurst's history. Mm. I mean, this story is very much based in the kind of 80s, but going right back into the mid-20th century, Darlinghurst was a sort of hotspot for sex work. You know, there's a little street called Woods Lane, and that was known as The Doors in the 1960s because of all the women standing indoors. So it's a really important sort of part of Darlinghurst's economic and industrial Mm. history. And part of the brief of this series was certainly to look at workers and employers and so it felt like it sort of, you know, fit the bill. Especially when you think about history as place and you just mentioned their Woods Lane with the doors open and you can still walk down that lane and get a sense of what it must have been like and you've also spoken with sex workers for this episode. So there are two archives there. There's an oral archive and there's the archive of place again that you're able to access for this episode. Yeah, that's right. And there was so much in this story as well that would have been fun to include. For example, the efforts that the Australian Prostitutes Collective took when HIV AIDS hit to ensure that this industry was proceeding on a safe basis. It was really difficult because brothels were actually illegal at that time and condoms were evidence that a place was a brothel, you know, and so brothels generally didn't have condoms. But during HIV AIDS, that was obviously really important. And so Julie suggested to one of the larger brothels in Sydney, look, you really have to come out and say, it's only safe sex on this premises. We've got a condom policy here. And after he did that, 
other brothels did it. So that was a really important game changer in that period as well. There's so much here that you can't include because of time, but there's also so much here that must be difficult to include because the very archive of the sex work industry is ephemeral and hard to access as a historian. You have two very generous interlocutors there who talk to you, but perhaps not everybody wants to. And as a historian, how do we, what are some of the challenges of telling the stories that might not otherwise be heard? Yeah, look, I think that is a challenge, but I think with storytelling, with oral history, there is an opportunity to access some of these people and some of these stories and to actually improve the archive in that way, to sort of fill it out. The full series of Listen to Darlinghurst is available in the History Lab feed via your favourite podcatcher. Listen to Darlinghurst is a production of the Australian Centre for Public History in partnership with the Paul Ramsey Foundation. The sound engineer is Judy Rapley. Music in today's story by Blue Dot Sessions. Archive material from ABC Content Sales. Thanks to Britta Jorgensen and Sarah Gilbert at Impact Studios UTS. History Lab is made on the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, whose land was never ceded. I'm Anna Clark. Catch you next time.